The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Oh, that was nice. I actually quite like reading scripture together. I think the next time we have a three-chapter sermon, uh, we, should, we should all read together as well. Sorry? Three-chapter sermon. Oh, right. Uh, Sunday school. Uh, children, please go to Sunday school. Uh, you're welcome to go. Uh, sorry, just need to adjust this. Okay. Um, it's good to be back. It's been a while since I've had the privilege of doing this, actually. Um, I really enjoy it. Like I always say, this is kind of like a family time. I, that's how I think about it. Family coming together, learning about the Word of God. And I really appreciate it. So uh, if we haven't met already, I'm Ikan. I'm a member of this church here in GCC, we call members Covenant Partners, uh, just to be a bit different. If you want to know why, come and chat after. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good to be back. Um, and I thought before we start, uh, I thought I would read something else. I thought I was going to read scripture, but then I found out this morning I wasn't. But I really want to read uh, a, part of a, psalm, a part of a psalm that has really been speaking to me. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for us. Psalm 90, the first few verses. Um, Psalm 90, verses 1 to 4. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Uh, and I thought that was just such a... It really has been striking me through the week as I've been thinking about our text. Um, I was just thinking about how uh, from thousands of years ago, uh, there was the, the sacrificial system of the priesthood, which we're going to look at today, uh, and how so many years later when Jesus comes, uh, we can look at the two and see the connection. And God, from everlasting to everlasting, is the one who has ordained that. Uh, and, and I think that just really struck me. Uh, I just thought it was a good reminder of the God we worship. He is from everlasting to everlasting. So that's my little uh, introduction, I guess, uh, just to share a bit. Um, we're continuing the book of Hebrews, uh, and I think before we zoom in on our three verses, it's a very rich three verses, um, let's get back into the flow of where we are in Hebrews. Okay, so uh, let's go really big picture. Uh, what is the book of Hebrews all about? Uh, the author of the book of Hebrews is all about showing us uh, the superiority of Jesus and using that as an encouragement to persevere in our Christian life and to worship God. Uh, he's already spent time, uh, quite a bit of time talking about Jesus being superior to the angels. He's talked about Jesus being greater than Moses and Joshua. And he's also given a couple of warnings to believers and therefore also to us to remain faithful. Uh, last week, uh, Chris gave us three Fs. He said, uh, fear-fueled faith is what he preached on. Uh, and this is the idea that there is a right kind of faith uh, that is healthy that should come when we think about how God's word pierces us to the soul and spirit. And therefore, we should heed the warning whenever it is called today, right, as long as you still have time, if you hear the warning, heed it and turn to God. 
And our, our text today is, is actually part of a, a next section, uh, together with chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, which talks about the priesthood of Jesus. Uh, and, and next week, in 5, 1 to 10, we'll be, we'll, it'll be a bit more technical as we examine the priesthood in detail, but this week is a bit more of a, a bridge between the two parts, uh, the themes that have come before and what is coming next. Uh, so that's where we've been, uh, and here's where we're going. Okay, so now, why is our text here? So what is this bridge that we're talking about? Uh, this text is here to give us reassurance as we live with this healthy fear of God. If you've never thought about living in fear before, um, this is living in fear, but a good kind of fear. And if you didn't, and if you, if you struggle with that, you weren't here last week, I encourage you to just go listen to last week's sermon and, and learn what healthy fear looks like. But our text today about reassurance and perseverance is not here to remove our fear. It's not here to remove our fear of being scrutinized by God and ultimately giving account to Him. Because the, the warning works because it gives us a healthy fear of God. But the scripture, which we're going to see today, also invites us to approach God in faith and repentance. In our text, the author of Hebrews will show us how understanding Jesus as our great high priest will help us to do just that. So uh, let me pray uh, as we jump in. Father, we praise you. You are from everlasting to everlasting. No one on this planet can claim to have more wisdom than you, to know more about this world that you've created than you do. You know us better than we know ourselves. As you said to Job, uh, we, we can't know the first thing even about creation. We don't even know much about the, the goats and, and all these animals, but you know. Uh, we can't control anything in this world, not when it snows or when it rains, but you can. Help us to remember this, that you are the God of all of history and eternity as we look at this text, as we think about the priesthood all those years ago and about Jesus Christ and about us today and about our coming future. Help us by your Holy Spirit to see Jesus, to worship him, and to by the power of your grace Look to the future joyfully and with hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I give up. I've done it again. Why am I like this? Why can't I just do better? Why did I get angry yet again? How could I make the same mistake? And I wonder how many of us, between last week and this week, or sometime in the recent past, have said or thought something like this in our heads. We were told last week, fear God, obey Him, heed His warning as long as it's called today. But somewhere along the line, we ended up doing the opposite of hearing God's call to faithfulness and obedience. Or maybe for some of us, we look like we're being faithful and obedient, but deep inside, we know we're not. And yet we're told that God knows us completely. Down to the deepest intentions of our hearts. We cannot hide from God. Uh, there's no place, uh, there's no part of us dark enough or hidden enough that God cannot see into. So we may fool 
everyone else, but we will never fool God. And I'm guessing if you remember verse 16 of our text, this doesn't exactly fill you with confidence to come before God, either here in the present or when we ultimately give account at the end. And furthermore, this idea, this prospect, doesn't exactly make us feel like we've entered God's rest, like we're told to strive for earlier in chapter 4. And yet we are called to live with this fear and persevere to the end. So in other words, the question we're trying to answer today is what does Christian perseverance look like? So we're going to look at the anatomy of perseverance in three parts, uh, quite logically, verse 14, 15, 16. 14, we'll see how we're told to confess the great high priest. Verse 15, we'll learn how to behold the sympathetic Jesus. And in verse 16, we'll learn about the privilege of receiving mercy from the throne of God. Okay? So confessing the great high priest, beholding the sympathetic Jesus, and receiving mercy from the throne of God. Let's start with confessing the great high priest. Now, verse 14 starts with the words, since then, which is essentially the same word as therefore. And so this tells us that we are on the right track, right? We are correct to think about this text in connection with what has come before in the previous text. So since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So what is a priest? Biblically, now other religions have uh, this concept and office of, of priests as well, but in Christianity, biblically, a priest is a person who acts as a representative for the people before God. And if we look back at the book of Leviticus, everyone's favorite book, uh, one of the key roles of the priest was to represent the people of God by offering sacrifices within the tabernacle. That's pretty much the major way. And as one theologian puts it, uh, the priest basically ensured that the Israelites could worship God without dying because of their sin. That's basically it. Um, they interceded for Israel, they offered sacrifices for Israel's sin, and they guided them in worshipping him day to day. And if you, if you were to go through the book of Leviticus um, with a little bit of imagination, it wouldn't take much to imagine a couple of things. Now, firstly just how much blood there was in the tabernacle. I mean, just read through the early chapters and it'll be very, very obvious. Like, it's sprayed here, it's smeared on there, it's poured out another place. You know, the minute you entered, like, you think the tabernacle is just all red. It didn't start out that way, but it's just blood everywhere. What do you think the Israelites, the Israelites would have been thinking about when they walked in the tabernacle? And the second thing is, every day while the Israelites walked around their encampment, they would have smelt burned animals perpetually. Now, maybe for some of us, we here in KL, we smell pollution. Sate. You know what to get in for lunch, huh? Okay. Uh, but think about this. Like, can you imagine living every day with the smell of burned animals perpetually, night and day? This would have been a daily reminder of Israel's abundant sinfulness. The cost of their sinfulness, but also reminders of God's mercy. And the high priest oversaw all of this. 
but maybe the pinnacle of the high priest's duties was the Day of Atonement, and you can read about it in Leviticus 16 and 23. 16 is a bit longer, 23 is a bit more specific. But basically, for the Day of Atonement, what the high priest did was, you know, once a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies. Um, that's where the fullness of God's presence dwelt. Uh, and in fact, this was the only time that anyone would be allowed into the Holy of Holies. And what he would do is he would make atonement for Israel. So let's talk through a bit about what that looked like. Uh, beforehand, this, this is going to lead to our text, okay? Um, beforehand, uh, he would bathe and he would put on special ceremonial clothing, most probably entirely white. And then he would sacrifice five animals, uh, a bull, two rams, and two goats, firstly to make atonement for himself and his family, and then make atonement for all of Israel. One goat would be sacrificed and its blood would be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, but the other goat was called a scapegoat, which is where we get our modern usage of the word. And the high priest would lay his hands on its head, confess the sin and rebellion of Israel over it, and then the goat would be sent out into the wilderness, carrying the sin of the people, signifying the removal of sin from among Israel. No prizes for guessing what happens to a goat all alone in the wild. Now, can you imagine if the Israelites didn't have a high priest who knew how to represent the nation rightly and offer sacrifices for their sin. You know, sometimes I, I, I like to think about the fact that all of Israel gathered outside on the Day of Atonement, and what they would do is, you know, they would attach a bell to the priest and he'll go in, and then if, you know, if he makes a mistake and he dies, they'll drag him out and someone goes in. Like, I wonder if it ever crossed their mind, like, what if we run out of high priests? Like, what do we do then? You know, I, I have no idea. But it begs the question, right, like, what would they do without these high priests? And I think the answer is quite simple. The wrath of God would have broken out against them. Habisla. But even with the priests, think about it, even with year after year of sacrifices, no Israelite would ever be allowed into the Holy of Holies. There was this great curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the fullness of God and everything and everyone else. And only the high priest would go, it, go behind it once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's it. For all the sacrifices of sin, every person remained inherently sinful and would never be in full communion with God. And so it is with us. If all we had was just another high priest, we would never have full communion with God because of our sin. And also, we would probably still be an agrarian society today. But coming back to the book of Hebrews, the author doesn't say that Jesus is just another high priest. He says that Jesus is our great high priest. And this is a beautiful thing. You know, one of the questions that people sometimes ask is, you know, why didn't Jesus come any earlier? You know, why didn't he come 100 years, 200 years, 300 years before he did? Why that exact moment? And in some sense, we, we can't quite answer the question with our limited knowledge, but also perhaps one of the reasons that God waited that long was to give us the categories to fully comprehend the beauty of Jesus' ministry on earth so that we could look back at all those high priests and all those sacrifices and the entire system, look at Jesus and see the connection. It was for our good. 
But now let's look at how Jesus as the Son of God is different from these former high priests. And really simply, Jesus is different in two ways. Uh, the author tells us that Jesus' intercession for us, standing between God and man, doesn't take place in an earthly holy of holies within an earthly tabernacle, right? The, the author says Jesus has passed through the heavens. So if you're a Christian, Jesus, right this second, is interceding for us in heaven itself. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus, on the grounds of his sacrifice for us, is the one who pleads our case before God continually at the powerful position of the right hand of God. And he intercedes for us throughout our lives. Now, what kind of confidence should that give us as we live our lives? If we truly understood how Jesus is making our case for our perseverance before God, for our continual acceptance before God on the grounds of his sacrifice, what would shake us? And, we, and yet we do feel shaken, right? And we'll look at why that is. But if we truly grasp this fullness, we will not be shaken. He is interceding for us in heaven itself. But secondly, Jesus is unlike any other high priest because he is the Son of God. Now, this is a very rich title, and we aren't going to have the time to fully unpack it. Uh, there are lots and lots of pages that have been written, sermons that have been preached on the Son of God. But a couple of things that we can cover. Uh, earlier in Hebrews chapter 1, the author tells us that Jesus is this promised king who would reign forever and ever. And we can also go to Matthew eleven twenty seven, the words of Jesus. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. God the Son has a unique relationship with God the Father. So we don't simply have another human being interceding for us in heaven. We have the Son of God himself, this long-awaited, eternal, all-powerful king as our divine mediator. Isn't that wonderful? But what does it mean then for us holding fast to our confession? What does it have to do? Here's what holding fast to our confession is. It is to cling on to Jesus as our representative and mediator and our only hope of being in communion with God. It is to profess that we align ourselves with him, that we are allied with him, and we accept his divine mediation on our behalf because we know on our own that we have no plea. And the only precondition there is to accept that you have no plea. Have you done that? If you haven't given up on making your own case, you will never see why you need Jesus Christ. But you need to be brought to the place of saying, I, I can't stand before God. Even now, there's nothing I could plead to God from my own capacity. What more to say at the very end? There's nothing I will say before God. 
But some of us, even if you're a Christian, you live as though you have a plea. You live as though you have something to say, that you have something you can do to go before God and say, I'm good enough. And some of you kind of, if maybe if you're not a Christian, you kind of do something that looks like this. And you say, don't tell me about it, right? It's all nonsense. Uh, I don't want to hear a single thing. Uh, I, you know what? I'll, I'll just live my life. But the Bible confronts us with reality. We will need a plea. And the Bible also says that there is only one plea that works. That's something to consider. But what might it look like for us here as GCC? What does holding fast our confession look like? Uh, let's take note of the plural language in these verses. Uh, the author says, Since then, we let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have, right, and, and so on. This is a very, very plural text. And this tells us at least one thing. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. There is no solo Christianity. It's not an option. You can't pick A, B, or C. The Christian life is in community. The author is assuming that the Christians are hearing this together. That there was no one reading this letter alone in their home. It is in community. So I want to suggest two things uh, that we can do in response. Number one, be committed to a local church. If not GCC, then another church. It's one of the reasons that here at GCC we take covenant partnership, which is membership, so seriously. And sometimes it sounds very melodramatic, right? Like it's a matter of life and death. And actually, in a sense, it kind of is. If the Bible says that our continued perseverance in our faith is dependent on having a community, I don't think you can take it seriously enough. Because we are counting on our Christian community to help us persevere. And there is no other option that we have available. Secondly, invest in and serve the church. Find ways to embody the gospel and remind others of it. And perhaps, you know, you can think about it this way, perhaps some of you remind us of the comfort of the gospel in how you listen to others. Some of you remind us of the depth of the gospel in how you teach the scriptures. For others, you might remind people of how we're welcomed by God in the way that you're hospitable. Still others remind us about what awaits us in the new heavens and new earth by the food that you make. And it, think, it helps us to think, wow, what if heaven was eternally like this? Wouldn't this be awesome? And it is. And still others, you remind us of the goodness of God in creation by how excellently you work in your workplace. That's something else. And still others, uh, you remind us of the freedom and celebration that we have in Christ by leading us to sing like we just did and like we will later. We can celebrate, we can sing truths knowing that they are true in Christ. You see, the more often you say slash sing and embody the gospel, the easier it is to remember it, especially for those around you. So let us together, together confess our high priest in whatever way we can. 
our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Now let's look at beholding the sympathetic Jesus. Uh, and, and the wording is very intentional. Uh, Jesus is, was a very, very ordinary name at the time. Uh, many people were named Jesus, and it's just to emphasize the fact that Jesus became one of us. But here's the thing, right? Um, we've, we've talked about confessing the great high priest, and, and, but for many of us, even though we understand this at a head level, don't we find ourselves prayerless? Don't we struggle to repent? In other words, we should be living as though we have full communion with our Father, enjoying all the intimacy as His children, but we don't. We are commanded to repent, but we don't. Why? Why the disconnect? And I think the reason for it according to, to verse 15, is that we don't understand how Jesus sees us as we live in a broken world as broken and sinful people. So you might say, yes, I know he's my great high priest. Yes, I know he intercedes for me in the heavens. Yes, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And yes, I know therefore I should be confident. But when we think of Jesus in the heavens, perhaps what, what we might think of him is like a distant mechanical representative Maybe you think that he received lists of items to intercede for, and he says, yes, Father, it's Ekan again, uh, four recurring, six new ones. Um, but Father, on the ground of my sacrifice, he's forgiven, and the Father says, forgiven, and on it goes. Is that me? No, I don't know. Right? And we think of him as like this distant, mechanical representative. And maybe you think, hey, you know what? Shouldn't that be enough? I mean, it's technically true, right, all those things? Yeah, sure. And yet, that's not the picture that the Bible gives us. Remember last week in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verses 12 to 13? Right? The Word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And the disconnect is this. Sin goes all the way in. And our instinct is to hide from God. Just think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, what was one of the immediate reactions when they sinned? Shame. They hid from God. We're naked, right? And it's also why having our sin revealed is so uncomfortable. Because we feel naked, exposed, and ashamed and so we don't like repentance. And because we're so unwilling to repent, what happens is we fall into two different traps. One, either we repent because we experience the consequence of our sin, or we repent by trying really hard to make up for our sin on our own. And both of these are false repentance. Real repentance is tears that aren't forced out by the pain of a crisis and tears that aren't forced out by the pain of effort. Real repentance is tears that aren't forced out by a crisis and tears that aren't forced out by pain of effort. You know, there's this wonderful quote I heard recently that says, you know, even our tears of repentance 
must be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that true? How often have our instances of repentance actually been false repentance? Don't need to give me a number. I think we can all reflect. I think the answer is pretty often. We are not quick to repent. Real repentance is God-centered. It comes from a sorrowful heart that recognizes that our sin is wrong because we have transgressed against God. It doesn't come from your circumstances that pushes you. It doesn't come from within you wanting to justify yourself and gain your own standing. It's when you look at God and you say, I have transgressed God. And that brings us to sorrow. And repentance is not natural. So once again, how does verse 15 deal with this disconnect. The fact that knowing that Jesus is in heaven interceding for us alone doesn't necessarily bring us to true and full repentance. What does verse 15 have to say? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is it. Jesus knows and understands us. Before he ascended to the heavens to intercede for us, he first entered our world. He lived as a human being. He experienced the same stresses and struggles as we do. He faced the pain and anguish of living in this broken world. He was truly human, with a name just like every other name. And, you know, have you ever thought about it this way? Uh, you know, in the Gospels, there are plenty of people who question Jesus' divinity. You know, are you really God? Are you saying that you're God? Really, are you sure? But not once do we ever have someone go up to Jesus and say, you know, I can see how you're divine, but I'm really not sure that you're human. Not a single time. That, that never happened because Jesus was unquestionably human. And the author says he was tempted in every respect. Now, the author is not trying to say that Jesus faced literally every single possible permutation of temptation in this world. But what he is saying is that there's a bottom line, there's a bottom, at the bottom of every temptation is a deeper and underlying temptation. At the bottom of some temptations is the desire for control, to have the final say in everything. At the bottom of others is desiring power and authority, to have the say, the one and only say, um, perhaps for some of us, our temptations lead to comfort. We want to be shielded from the stresses of this world. And maybe for some temptations, it's wanting to gain approval, honor, respect, to be acknowledged or, be, or to be known as a somebody. There's always a deeper temptation underlying our temptations. And it's striking, isn't it, when you uh, look at the account of Jesus' temptation by Satan in Matthew 4? You know, just look at the array of ways that Jesus is tempted. How tired must he have been from fasting for 40 days and nights? How tempting would it have been, just at the snap of a finger, when he's tired and hungry, to turn the stone into bread? 
How tempting would it have been to give in to any of those challenges? Imagine being at the, the top of the world, seeing all the world at that time, and, and imagining every single one of them bowing to you in fear, not daring to contest you. And we might often miss it, but I love this. At the end of the temptation account, we're told that angels came and ministered to Jesus. Jesus didn't come through the, the trial painlessly and unscathed. The Son of God needed angels to tend to him. And what other temptations would Jesus have experienced throughout his years on earth? Real temptation, real pain. And yet Jesus never succumbed to any temptation. And so in Jesus, we see two things that come together beautifully. Firstly, we, we see that he alone was truly victorious in the fight against sin. Paul writes in Romans that there was the Adam, the first Adam who sinned, and Jesus, the second Adam, who is tempted and never sinned. He was tempted in every respect, never gave in to a, sing, to a single one, and Jesus alone is the sinless and perfect high priest. You know, every other high priest sinned. That's why they had to make atonement for themselves. And that's why all of them couldn't dwell in God's, the fullness of God's presence continually. But Jesus can in the heavens. His intercession for us is unceasing and completely unimpeded before God himself. And yet while he's victorious, he truly did experience the struggles of being tempted. And, and there's a whole debate that you can go into, well, not quite a debate, but it's, it's a lot to unpack, you know, how exactly does it work that Jesus is tempted, um, which is a lot we, we could go into, it'll take a day. Um, but for now, we are content to say that he was truly tempted. It wasn't false. And yet he was victorious. So Jesus is our perfect intermediary. And that means that when we come to him, the way that Jesus looks at us in our sin struggle today is not with judgment and condemnation. For the Christian, he will not condemn. And when you come to him, he will not scoff. He will not sneer. He will not laugh. And he will not shame. And that is what invites us to true repentance. Repentance comes when we realize that there is no hiding from God, but also that there is no need to hide from God. Shame can cripple you. It, it really can. But the wonderful, restoring mercy and compassion of Jesus in his sympathy invites us to come to God in repentance. What might repentance look like for us corporately as a body? Is it in our corporate repentance prayers like Manhan led us in? Yes. But also, let's be willing to hold ourselves as a church up to the mirror of Scripture and see where as a church we have failed to obey God fully. Let's be willing to be pointed out as wrong. Let's be willing to admit that we haven't got everything right. And sometimes it's, it's very easy to see where we are fallen as a church. But even in, when things seem to be going great, let's also be willing to re-examine ourselves and be corrected. 
What might repentance look like for you individually? Maybe you need to begin that process by admitting you're wrong with no caveats, no qualifications, and apologizing to another person, a friend, a spouse. Maybe for some of us, you need to kneel in the solitude of your home and be brought to tears, weeping like a child over your brokenness. Maybe that's what's needed. But the sympathy of Jesus invites us to repent. Behold the sympathetic incarnate man, Jesus. But finally, let's look at our last verse, receiving mercy from the throne. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the question to start with is, when do we do this drawing near? When exactly do we need to hold fast our repentance, remember our faith? And when do we draw near in repentance? And the answer that the text provides is in our time of need. What is this need? Well, in the context of the high priesthood and the Old Testament backdrop, it is whenever we sin. The point the author is trying to drive home to those Jewish background believers is that when they have an awareness of sin, they don't need a high priest like Aaron or one of his Levite descendants to offer sacrifices for them anymore. In Jesus, they have direct access to the holy of holies, so to speak, they are as much in God's presence as Jesus is in God's presence. And so it is with us. When we have an awareness of sin, be quick to repent and recognize the access that you have to God in Christ. But do you realize one implication of this? This means that as long as we live in this fallen world with our sinful selves, we will constantly need to draw near. Verse 16 will only be inapplicable when we see God face to face and are made perfect. And until then, verse 16 will be a continual imperative every single day of your life. There will never be a day when you are absolutely perfect in your speech, thoughts, the deepest motives of your hearts, and your actions. This process of drawing, holding fast our confession, coming to God in repentance, will be a constant and daily need to the end of our days. And therefore, this is what perseverance looks like. And on some days, we'll do well. Uh, we'll be quick to repent. We'll be joyfully reaffirming our faith in Christ and celebrating with genuinely broken hearts, remembering His grace. And other days, we will be feeble, weak, stubborn in our sin. But here's the beautiful thing. Oops. The beautiful thing is this. For as often as we will need to come to God, which is very often indeed, the author tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's also translated boldness. Confidence? Think about it. If I ask you to go and see the CEO of your company, how do you think you'll go? Are you going to walk up to his or her door and, excuse me, it's not going to happen. 
Um, you know, I, I, I was working in a, in a big company last time. I think some of you know which one, I won't say. Uh, but I was working in a big company, uh, and my access card couldn't even access the floor that the CEO was on. So I couldn't even exercise my boldness and confidence if I wanted to. What about confidence in approaching the king of the universe? How does that work? What does boldness look like to approach the, the king of everything? Approaching God's throne of grace is neither of two things. It is not enjoying the grace of God. Look at verse 16. It is not enjoying the grace of God while forgetting the throne, the fact that God is king. Neither is it focusing on the throne and forgetting that we have received grace. Godly confidence is this. It is seeing ourselves in light of the throne and seeing ourselves in light of the cross. When we look at the throne, we realize we are completely sinful and unworthy. We have rebelled against the king, but when we look at the cross, we realize that we have been made worthy. We see ourselves in light of the throne, and we see ourselves in light of the cross. Jesus is our high priest who himself became our perfect sacrifice on the cross. And therefore, nothing can keep us from God. When we understand the throne and the cross, we will not take Jesus' kingship lightly, nor will we underestimate his grace. We will have proper, godly confidence and boldness, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. And this is the great and beautiful irony of the Christian life. We strive, we persevere, but we strive by receiving mercy and grace to help in time of need. And you would expect that to approach a king is to be told what to do. In the same way, to use the poor CEO example again, we, some CEOs are great, okay? Um, but when you, when you approach a figure of authority, you would expect to be told what to do. And actually, as Christians, we are certainly given commands to obey. But the Christian life does not start with doing. The Christian life starts with laying down your doing and saying there's nothing I can do. And then picking it up and doing. It starts with receiving mercy and grace. It continues by continuing to recognize and receive the mercy and grace, and from that comes our doing. And we're invited to come to God for help again and again, day by day, and He will not be tired. He will not scoff. Jesus will not shame you. He invites you, and He sympathizes. So what is Christian perseverance? It is confessing the great high priest, affirming our faith together. It is beholding the sympathetic Jesus, allowing ourselves to be drawn to repentance and receiving mercy from the throne. This wonderful, continuing mercy and grace, knowing and assuring us that we are forgiven. So let's come before God today. But what will we bring? Will we bring a sacrifice before a high priest? No, no we don't. Marvel at the fact that you don't have to carry an animal with you. Marvel because when we approach God's throne, we come instead with a confession. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's our confession. Let's pray. Father, thank you. With grateful hearts we pray.
thank you that you are the king who sent your son to live among us, to incarnate, to go through the true and real struggles of living in this world, being tempted by sin, and yet you triumph. And Jesus, we look to you. You are in the heavens. You are bringing our plea before God, the Father, and we are forgiven because of what you have done. And Lord, we commit as a church to being willing to be shown where we are lacking and how we can better live in line with your word. We look to the end and we look with assurance. We look with a healthy fear knowing that we are fallen and we are prone to stray, but we also look with confidence. We yearn to approach you, repent of all the things we've done wrong, knowing that you receive us. Help us to treasure this wonderful gospel and embody it to one another for the glory of your name, the good of your people, and for the salvation of all who do not yet believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.